Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Crown Resorts should be stripped of its right to hold a casino licence in Melbourne. That's according to a senior lawyer assisting the current Royal Commission underway in Victoria. In a stinging closing submission last week, Adrian Finanzio, SC, said the company had engaged in serious misconduct in failing to act on problem gambling and illegal activities and, as a result, had lost the right to operate Victoria's sole casino. Charles Livingston is an associate professor with Monash University's School of Public Health and and preventive medicine. He's been researching gambling and its impacts for decades and has been following the Royal Commission. Um, I was just uh, relaying, I suppose, the comments from a senior lawyer assisting the current Royal Commission um, who suggested that Crown Resort should be stripped of its right to hold a casino licence in Melbourne. How significant were those remarks um, from the Royal Commission last week? Oh, well, it's not something that um, senior counsel, senior barristers advise lightly. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of gravity behind it. But, I mean, the, the reality is that there have been so many indiscretions, uh, misconduct, illegal conduct and poor conduct from Crown that it's hard to imagine how they could keep their licence, uh, let alone that the senior counsel could recommend that it be stripped of them. So they've got a lot to answer for, unfortunately, from their point of view. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, straight away when these sorts of comments are made and, as you say, so much has come out already, um, the idea that such a massive employer could go down in Victoria is, you know, a, a huge um, event, a huge possibility. I mean, how does, how does this kind of idea of, of a big employer going down like this because of misconduct play out? How is it going to play out, do you think, um, Charles? Well, there's a number of possibilities. One is that Crown could simply lose its licence in its entirety and be forced to shut down. The other one is that they can... And remember, the Crown is a you know a casino surrounded by a bunch of um, hospitality properties, so it's possible that they could continue to trade their hospitality properties and keep some work going and uh, at the same time either have their casino licence revoked or suspended and uh, get their house in order or that another operator be found to carry on the business. There's also the possibility that the state can suspend their licence and uh, you know put in place a manager to keep running the casino while its crown sorts itself out or disappears forever. Um, either of those possibilities is uh, is on the table. So the reality is that, yeah, Crown employs a lot of people and it contributes a great deal to the state economy. But remember, it's less than... The amount of revenue it contributes, including payroll tax, is less than 1% of the state tax revenue and a very insignificant proportion of the total state budget. And although 11,000 people work there, that's still a fairly minor proportion of the entire state's workforce. I'm not suggesting that they should all lose their jobs. I hope they don't. But it's possible that the operation could continue um, without the casino or uh, that it could continue with the casino in place but run by another manager appointed by the state government. And we've heard stories over, you know, recent years and going back further as well around uh, alleged misconduct um, happening within Crown and, and, you know, some of that exposed by investigative journalists and the like. I wonder if you can just remind us how we got here, how it kind of led to a Royal Commission actually being announced by the Victorian government. Well, 
what really led to it was the, uh, I mean, there'd been rumours and stories around for a long time about the misconduct at Crown and indeed, you know, even the VCGLR, which has not been terribly prompt in regulating the casino, found against it on a couple of occasions before there was the, um, the, the sort of aged Sydney Morning Herald stories. But they really set it off. I mean, that was in mid 2019, uh, and they alleged a whole host of misconduct, including money laundering, criminal connections, and very poor treatment of the company's agents in China, who, as um, your listeners will know, were arrested. 19 of them were arrested in China in 2016 for promoting gambling, which is a very serious crime in China. So that's what really uh, spilled the beans, as it were, and it promoted the... See, because Crown was supposed to open its big Gorangaroo Casino mm. in Sydney by the end of last year, uh, and the government up there just couldn't deal with the pressure anymore, and so they in- instituted a, an inquiry headed by a former Justice Bergen, and she found that um, Crown was basically not suitable, and this was because of its... Uh, not just its... Uh, misconduct involving money laundering and so on, but also because the people running it uh, were just simply not suitable people, and that included the influence exerted by Mr James Packer, the principal shareholder in the company. So that's where the rot really set in, and once that finding came down in February this year, then uh, the whole house of cards started to crumble, and we've seen royal commissions now instituted in Western Australia as well as Victoria, uh, and the likelihood that Crown is going to be very seriously uh, constrained from its gambling operations probably, in a, you know, I mean, my, my strong view is that they will certainly get a suspension of their licence and probably a loss of licence. Yeah, gee, that's a really big deal. And I'm, I'm actually interested, um, uh, Charles, because, you know, in my lifetime, this casino has turned up in Melbourne. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't there um, previously. No. I mean, I, I don't want to go back too much in, in history, but, you know, some people have never supported a casino in Melbourne. And so mm-hmm. does any of this go back to the establishment of the, the casino in the first place or is it really more recent recent history than that? Oh, look, the casino's always been controversial in Victoria for a host of reasons. Um, I mean, when it was first instituted, it was supposed to be a much smaller outfit. It wasn't supposed to be located on the waterfront, um, you know, on the uh, on the banks of the river in Melbourne. It was supposed to be somewhere else. Where the casino now sits was supposed to be occupied by the Museum of Victoria, which now sits in Carlton Gardens instead. So whilst the Labor Party under Joan Kerner instituted legislation to set the casino and the pokey clubs up, uh, the Liberals who won in 92 um, took it up and, and ran with it, turned it into a mega casino uh, and supported it very strongly under the Premiership of Jeff Kennett. And since then, both sides of politics have been pretty much hand in glove with them. They're big donors to political parties. They recruit former politicians and political staffers to do their uh, quote-unquote dirty work for them uh, and they maintain very close relationships with people of you know, all sorts of positions of power and influence. So such as, uh, you know, the the big end of town, I guess you could say. So, you know, they recruit people who are well-known for their connections to sit on the board. Uh, They recruit from both sides of politics uh, and they've always tried to make sure their influence very much... uh, is very much at the top end of town. So the political interests that um, operate 
uh, to keep Crown in business have been very contentious from the get-go and they continue to be so, although both sides of politics are running away from those fast as they can at this point in time, I think. Yeah, and that touches on a really important and, and systemic issue. I mean, we can acknowledge the um, you know instances and, and allegations of misconduct and, and fraud and, and that sort of thing that have been associated with Crown, but then on the other side, there's this cosy relationship between politicians and the organisation over time. Do you imagine that that could change at all? I mean, whether you know Crown does keep its licence in Melbourne or even if a company replaces it, I mean, that seems like a really significant issue that, that goes to the relationship between you know gambling and, and politics in this country? Well, I mean, vested interests and rent seekers have always sought close relationships with governments and I think we really need to change that culture and we need to change that culture by better regulating it. I mean, I don't think there's any reason why political parties should accept donations from companies like gambling operators and they certainly shouldn't be uh, allowed to go and serve on their boards a minute after they leave politics, which has happened in this case, uh, or go and work for them as lobbyists. I think we need a really clear division between political operators and commercial operators, uh, including gambling operators, and I think we need to sort of almost retrospectively legislate that. It's, it's become endemic in our system of the government in Australia at all levels and it really needs to change dramatically if we're going to have clean operations at every level. And we've got Charles Livingston with us, a gambling reform expert at Monash Uni and we're speaking about uh, Crown Casino, uh, the Royal Commission and uh, you know what, what might come, especially when really it's possible that that Crown could fail or be stripped of its licence or have have it suspended and and many other opportunities. I mean, what comes now with the the Royal Commission, um, Charles? So uh, in a week's time, Crown and the other parties that are interested in this, which are the state government and the VCGLR, the regulator, get to put their final submissions. So it'll be interesting to see what Crown has to say in response. Then uh, the Commissioner considers uh, the position and will come back with a report, which I think is due by early October. So after that, we'll have a long intermission between now and October and we'll find out what the Commissioner thinks. But, you know, unless Crown can come up with some very, very persuasive rhetoric, it's hard to see how they can um, get away with what they've got away with. I mean, they're basically on their third chance now. They had their first chance with Bergen. Um, if you know, they've, they've had lots of problems with VCGLR, including a million-dollar fine for misleading the regulator about uh, the state of their business in China. Uh, and now they're about to suffer some fairly damning conclusions, I think, from this Royal Commission. So it's hard to see how they can keep operating and for us to then have any, any confidence in the integrity of government. Uh, and or the regulation of gambling in this state. Is there a hope from this, Charles, that there could it could spark broader gambling reforms? I mean, you've written about the concept of responsible gambling and what sorts of changes and, and legislation could be introduced in the way that we approach, you know, harm minimisation, for instance. Do you imagine that, that anything might change, kind of, you know, broadly speaking, out of this Royal Commission? Well, we'll see. I, you know, I mean, at the moment, everybody's focused on the sort of the hot topics of money laundering and so on. But mm. the Royal Commission spent a lot of time looking at the quote-unquote responsible gambling practices of Crown and damning them for their inadequacy. So, you know, we hope that that will become a focus of the recommendations of the Royal Commission. And if it is, then it's nothing. It's something that the government can't ignore, and they tend to ignore these things because uh, the constituency that cares about them isn't as vocal as it has been in other areas. But nonetheless. Uh, we can only hope that the Commission makes a report which includes these and that if it does that, which I'm sure it will, then we're going to end up with a lot of pressure on the government more than ever before, I think.
And and just. But I was going to say, I, I, for some reason, I just keep having this vision of an exploding cigar, and I'm wondering if that is is possible for the state government in calling this royal commission that actually there's going to be a lot of focus on on state government, um, not just the company. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, a lot of commentators suggested that instituting a commission was something that was politically impossible not to do and that it was kicking the can down the road. And perhaps it has blown up in their face. But I think, you know, Andrews and the state Labor government are sufficiently politically adroit to turn uh, this into a, uh, how can I put it, to make a virtue out of the necessity of cleaning up Crown. So if they can do that, then I think what we're going to find is that there will be a lot more pressure for reform. But you know, we've got to wait and see what the Commission comes down with. We've got to wait and see what the VCGLR responds to it and we've got to wait and see what the politicians decide. But I just can't see that um, any government could avoid uh, taking reasonably serious action against the operators in these circumstances and I also can't see how they can't toughen up their so-called responsible gambling rules. And just lastly, Charles, on a slightly different issue, we know you watch uh, kind of gambling uh, very closely. I'm interested to know whether, and I suppose in what ways, the pandemic has changed or shifted gambling behaviours among Australians. Obviously, venues, um, pokies venues and the like have been closed for certain periods. Have there been any really significant shifts in that regard that, that might tell us something about the future, for instance? Well, there was, a, there, there was an uptake in online gambling during the p- period when pokey venues were shut. That did not match the amount of gambling that wasn't happening, though. So although there was a degree of substitution, it was nowhere near the amount that was not being spent in pokey joints. Since the uh, joints have opened up again, however, there's been a surge uh, in revenue from them. Um, it's unclear exactly where that's coming from. Some of it may be coming from government payments, some of it from you know, money people haven't spent, but, you know, it's it's picked up across the board. So, and online gambling is surging back on the back of a lot of marketing and sporting events coming back and so on. So it's not entirely clear what the pattern is, but certainly it didn't spark massive migration to online gambling, despite what some commentators have suggested. Uh, and the period when the pokies were shut meant an awful lot of people saved an awful lot of money. Well, I mean, that's that's good. <laughs> um, something we like a little bit of spark of good news somewhere, at least. Um, Charles, thanks so much for thanks for so much okay. for um, speaking with us today. Appreciate it. Okay, take care. Bye. You too, uh, Associate Professor Charles Livingston, School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, and uh, at Monash Uni, and uh, he's also well joining us as a gambling reform expert. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And in the lead up to Olympic Games, uh, the stories are generally around buildings that run over budget. Uh, We hear stories about venues and athletes' villages that fall into disuse and disrepair as soon as the Olympic events are finished. And uh, these are just some of the issues that plague Olympic architecture. But, you know, why is it so and can it be different? We thought we'd ask Dr Dave Nichols about the legacy left by Olympic Games on their host cities. Uh, Dave is Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne and our uh, regular uh, speaking all things urban planning and Dave it's um, nice to have you and I, I guess have you been sort of having a look at Olympic ar- architecture? Yes I have Kalia. Hi, hi both of you. I hope you're doing well there. Um, yeah I, I mean it's 
I find it I find it really really fascinating. I think your listeners, if they if they if they paid attention to me over the over the decade or however long it's been that I've been coming on Grapevine, um, I've always been fascinated by um, I'm, a, I'm a big I'm a big Finnophile. I'm really into Finland, and um, the so I've I've spent a bit of time at the Helsinki Olympic Village of the late 1940s, and I gather that this is the first time. And this this is relevant. The first time that um, a city goes, okay, we've got to have an Olympics. They actually had to prepare twice because the first time they prepared for the Olympics, the World War Two got in the way. Um, they and they were like, well, we've got a housing shortage. We um, how do we, we can we can do a kind of um, double whammy here? We can host athletes for the Olympics and we can build a whole lot of housing that we can then sell or provide to people um, to deal with our major housing shortage. And I think that 1950 or so, whenever it was, 1952 Olympics, was the first time that that, uh, that, that happened in a serious way. Since that time, it's become a kind of a thing, not just the Olympic Village, not just the, um, the accommodation for athletes, um, but other other facilities and amenities as well. The Olympics has, um, both the Summer and Winter Olympics, have come through, <coughs> excuse me, cities and, uh, you know, left them uh, a very different kind of proposition uh, after the fact uh, because it's a, it's a way, I suppose, to marshal and harness resources and, uh, and make a, uh, remake a city, uh, recalibrate it, uh, reorient it, uh, most specifically and most obviously, um, it's it's when you know a a city will say, or people who are in charge of a city will say, oh, there's that old uh, that old industrial ex-industrial area down by the river. Um, you know, it's a it's a real mess. Well, now's our chance to completely compulsorily purchase stuff um, and just just remake that that whole particular area, and we're left with uh, a really sweet. Um, upmarket uh, housing district that um, all the the professionals and people working in um, you know in um, sort of areas of uh, white collar workers will want to uh, inhabit and they'll pay top dollar for. And so looking well, at, seems to work that way. at, I guess, the you know the Melbourne Olympics in 1956, the, the West Heidelberg Olympics village that sort of everyone knows about. So was that sort of build, building on, I suppose, that Finnish model of, of a purpose-built yes. um, village for the athletes that then would be Absolutely. used for, for public housing in the years afterwards? Exactly. And you know, Melbourne in the, in the 50s, m- m- massive housing shortage because there hadn't been any housing built um, all through the 1930s and into the 1940s. So there was a huge amount of catching up that had to be done on the Housing Commission. Had um, That was its role, obviously, by dint of its name, um, obviously, uh, to to provide as much housing as possible. So, yeah, it was a, that was a uh, classic example and um, taking uh, cues, I think, from the Finnish example. So, um, you know, I mean, clearly West Heidelberg, uh, for all its... Um, Advantages and its aesthetic appeal, which I it has, certainly has an aesthetic appeal for me. Um, that's not an example of uh, white collar workers on a riverside, you know. Um, but but there's there is that aspect to it that it's um, we get it, we get a chance to completely you know redo. We get we get funding, we get really directed funding, and uh, we get a. Um, because you know the eyes of the world are going to be on the uh, the city in question, um, 
everyone gets out of the way to make this happen, or everyone you know chips in to make this happen, but but doesn't interfere and doesn't and doesn't make a you know the usual kinds of fuss that people might make because you, you know it's almost unpatriotic, like that's a crime, but it's almost you know unpatriotic to to uh, to get in the way and, and make um, objections to to the way things are being done. Yeah, and I, I think I mean I was I was paying attention because I knew we were talking about it with you today about why then do we get sort of protest really and all real concern from communities leading up to Olympics about the spend and about mm. the legacy the games mm. are going to leave uh, and I remember you know some good news stories came out of the London Olympics for instance where uh, they did some of this stuff really well but but people in, the, I think it was the Hackney area of London, were like, well, hang on, our community doesn't look anything like it was before. It was kind of edgy yeah. and interesting, and now it's absolutely yeah. not, although there are buildings there that are, are being used by the community now, I understand. But, I mean, one architect's uh, musing on it was that any time the Olympic Games leads to uh, projects that put the venue first rather than the community are basically doomed to failure and you know that we've had this move towards temporary buildings and things like this that will disappear once the games yeah. happen yeah. I mean is that would that be your observation too that uh, that if you don't put community first then it's yeah you're going to have these kind of awful legacies left well you know totally I mean let me put my cards on the table for what it matters uh, I hate the Olympics um, i I just feel sick inside every time they come around. Um, but they are they're absolutely a, a, a opportunity to grandstand a particular nation to make make big claims about itself, and it's got to look good. It's going to look good. So the things like um, when, when there are those issues where there's some, there's temporary buildings that end up being rubbish afterwards, uh, it doesn't really matter. Once the eyes of the world are off the place. Then you know the probably in many instances I've done some you know historical reading on this and in many instances developers step in and say ah oh, well there's a, a little clause in my contract that says I can have this for half price those kinds of things and um, there's a kind of uh, post Olympics uh, cash grab or grab land grab I suppose that um, people can can make and do make so there's there's that kind of aspect to it as well but so it comes up to you know in the in the years coming up and brisbane what is it 2032 so yeah. so far away it seems you know a million years away well, i guess it's 11 years away uh we're going to see a really a nice sheen put on the city and then afterwards when when everyone's uh not not paying attention anymore then then that's when the real test comes to what kind of advantage, if any, um, or even just what kind of effect uh, an, an Olympic Games can have on a city. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff with Brisbane, if you don't mind me talking about Brisbane itself for a second. I mean, I, I haven't seen any plans for where Brisbane is going to put its Olympic village or its, you know, I think there's going to be some reuse of existing spaces, if not actual buildings, you know, sort of arena type spaces. But um, the Expo 88 that was held in Brisbane in, right, I think it's more or less at the end of the Bjorki Peterson era, and the, the notion was that Bjorki Peterson's offices looked across the river there in, in Brisbane at a, a particularly down at heel in industrial or mixed-use. Um, Wikipedia says derelict, but I doubt that. 
uh, area. You're questioning Wikipedia, Dave. <laughs> I, I question Wikipedia about 45 times a day. That's my... That's my um, and that's what I have to do. But the... So, that, so there was that kind of that aspect to to the the idea of, a, of attracting Expo to to Brisbane, and it really remade a big section of South Brisbane. And there's all those kinds of bells and whistles from the monorail, which was temporary, to the Kendone letters spelling out the word Australia, which uh, still exists. And uh, it was a, I mean, it was a huge success, but it. It was really a classic example of, you know, I mean, I, I really can't stand that phrase, that term, Bris Vegas, <laughs> but that's probably where it comes from. Um, that kind of, all that showy spectacle and behind, you know, peek behind the curtain a little bit and you see, for instance, in the case of um, Brisbane, there was a park called Musgrave Park, which had significance in Indigenous people of the area. And if you look at the press coverage of the way that the, I can't remember his name, but the head of the um, Expo committee was talking about the Aboriginal people of Musgrave Park, it is not pretty. Even for 1988, which you think of as, you know, a little bit dark ages, it was nasty. So there's, there's, a, there's an opportunity to sweep a lot of things either under the carpet or completely out of out of the picture altogether. Yeah, we're speaking with Associate Professor in Urban Planning, Dave Nichols, about um, the 2032 Olympics slated for Brisbane and, and broader issues about the impact of the Olympics on cities. And, and that sort of reminded me of some of, some of the issues that have plagued um, the, the Olympics in Rio and, and, and in China as well, with people being sort of moved on from areas to make way for the Olympics. In Brazil, it was the, the favelas. And, um, and, you know, there's also been issues around, uh, you know, the homeless being moved on when there's big public events in, in cities as well. So there's these kind of issues that have plagued Olympics over time. But we've also seen, I mean, Brisbane reportedly was the only city in the running for the Olympics in 2032. Um, and I mean, you've outlined some of the opportunities that the Olympics provides to, uh, you know, provide public housing and, and um, deliver these kind of, you know, once in a, in a lifetime, in a generation investments in cities and infrastructure and that sort of thing. But is there a sense that the sheen has kind of gone off the Olympics? that given, you know, previous budget blowouts, they really don't necessarily deliver all the benefits that people hope that they would? Probably depends on your perspective. I, I mean, it, to me, the, the whole thing, the whole enterprise is meaningless. So uh, the, the benefits, yeah, they're, they're in, the, in the eye of the beholder and some pe people who love that kind of thing will probably say, I don't care about uh, you know, half a billion dollars here or there. We got this amazing moment in world history, and uh, and that kind of thing. And people in Brisbane will say, "Well, whatever happened, we we attracted fund. We got some government funding to fix up this part of town, and now we have this world class um, sporting arena. That kind of stuff. Which, if that's an interest of yours, then it, then it's probably something that, in a manner of speaking, money. Money's not important. Uh, and the, it does, I think it almost always completely remakes a city. But, it, but you could also argue that maybe it just speeds up some things, you know, it accelerates some aspects of a process that's already underway. Uh, and it just takes, um, it, it just gives that extra little bit of burst of energy to get it over a, a particular finish line and, and key players can make things happen in the, uh, 
more than they would otherwise or more quickly than they would be able to otherwise. And what then about this idea that, that Brisbane's going to be cut price Olympics, you know, that, uh, I mean, how do, how, do, how do you read that, I guess, Dave, this idea that maybe some of the extravagance and, and overstep might, might not happen or, or mm. uh, whether some of the benefits therefore might not flow if, if people see that there are benefits with regards to new public housing or whatever it might be. How, how do you read that um, as a statement? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, Colour, and I think it's one of those, like, there's so little detail about the actual, what's being promised or what's being proposed or imagined for this, for the Brisbane Olympics. Maybe because I mean, they were the only only um, contender. <laughs> no, I know, I know, Exactly. Exactly. So, it's, and and they're not a you know Tokyo. It's obviously meant a huge amount to Tokyo, uh, not just because of the money that's in, been involved in televising their Olympics and stuff like that, or the advertising money and so on. So, there's a lot of money that people need to recoup, which is why we've got this really dodgy, diseased Olympics going on right now. But um, it was a, there was a there was a bit of a prestige element to it because Tokyo is an amazing world city, and all due respect to Brisbane, beautiful city in many ways. Um, it's not necessarily enhanced by this kind of thing going on. But um, Brisbane is a you know it's a second tier city in a in a second tier nation. I mean, yeah. So what are the expectations at the moment? There are very few, and clearly nobody wanted it. It's a little like it reminds me of Eurovision. You know how nobody wants to win Eurovision because uh, then they have to host the Eurovision the next year. And, and this is um, this seems to be quite set for some reason. The you know people like uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk like put their hand up, knowing full well that they're not going to be around to have to deal with the the intricacies of making the thing happen. I mean, she must only see a few years left in her tenure if she's got any self-awareness or understanding the political process. So she'll be long gone by the time anyone has to seriously contend with the problems that come with that decision. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Um, That's all we've got time for, Dave. Uh, so yeah, well, well I was just getting started. I know. Well, I was... You can get back to your Olympics watching. I think that you know the dressage is starting soon. Oh, don't, don't make me sick. I don't even know what that is. I don't <laughs> even know what that is, and I, and, and say... I don't want to. <laughs> I have to say that I used the term Bris Vegas" at the beginning of the show, and you didn't hear it, but maybe you did hear it, and no. that's how come you no. took a swipe. I don't know. No, I didn't. Um, I didn't. And the other, I did have one. Uh, actually, I was going to ask about whether the Olympic Committee itself actually has power over these cities when they host the games, but maybe that's just another conversation. It's probably still going to be going next time we speak to you, so maybe I can ask you then. Well, it's going to be going for 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> At least. Oh, and man. more. And then there's the wash-up. So let's yeah. just talk about it every month for the next... Oh, 11 okay. years of Olympics chats with Dave oh. Nichols. I love it. Well, this is going to get funny. Okay. It's, um, <laughs> thanks, Dave. Catch you soon. Take care of yourself. Thanks a lot. See you. Bye. Uh, Dave Nichols, uh, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. Triple. Ah. Talking now about uh, a story that emerged last week that a spyware tool from Israeli company NSO was being used against activists, journalists and private citizens. Uh, some uh, reports indicate as many as a thousand phones may be affected, including Apple and Android phones, uh, with some infected um, in what's called a zero-click attack, uh, where the user is not in any way involved in their device being compromised. Lucy Kralkova is Exec Director of Digital Rights Watch. And Lucy, to be honest, I don't fully get how Pegasus spyware works. I guess um, maybe only some people do, but how 
how um, did it come to be in use? I wonder if you can bring us up to date and thanks for joining us. Hi, well, good morning, and thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, Pegasus is just one of um, several tools that we see law enforcement and intelligence agencies use um, when they need to conduct investigations and they want to compromise people's phones or computers. Um, and the unique thing, as you say about Pegasus, is that it doesn't require a click from a person. So normally, um, the way that spyware or, or these sort of tools are distributed is you get a message or an email file or something like that. You click it and maybe it just sort of disappears, doesn't really take you anywhere, and people just kind of shrug, shrug it off and think, oh, that must have been a wrong link. Um, and so historically speaking, that's how we've always been able to tell that an attack has happened. And um, NSO has been working in this field for many years. I've actually followed the development of Pegasus through many years. I worked on this back in the EU when I was still working um, in Europe, and um, they're constantly developing. And now they can do this uh, by throwing a push notification to your phone that auto-downloads and installs the program remotely. A very unique and terrifying feature. And so what led you to, to Pegasus initially? Uh, I wonder if you can just sort of give us a sense of, of, of how they emerged and, and when you began sort of really paying attention and, and, and tracking what they were doing. That's a good question. I'm searching my memory files for, the, <laughs> for this. Um, at, at, the, at the time, uh, we were looking at another piece of spyware, which was uh, Finn Fisher, which was being used against uh, peaceful demonstrators who were marching for democracy in Turkey. Um, and Pegasus just kind of floated out of the woodwork as one of the other... Um, uh, programs that was out there. Um, NSO Group at the time we realized was trading through the EU, um, so we exchanged some very fiery letters <laughs> with government agencies. Um, but the interesting thing about NSO was that well, when they kind of became big was when um, they were supposed to be acquired by Blackstone, which is a huge investment group. And so at the time at Access Now, which was my former employer, we ran a huge campaign um, to sort of stop the acquisition. And um, that's sort of, I think, when the NSO <laughs> trouble NSO group versus civil society trouble began, and um, obviously they were also implicated in the uh, murder of um, journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, so that's, I think, when they sort of really started retaining a reputation with the international community. And, I mean, what's been interesting for me in, in reading about this story is that uh, that that the company says it's concerned that their, their stuff's been abused, um, but the sort of legitimacy, I guess, of it, of the actual spyware itself isn't what's being called into question. I wonder about your thoughts on, on legitimacy of, of spyware like this, because I guess, you know, the idea that it's okay or it's permitted to be used um, to investigate serious crimes and grave security th threats is the, the defence for it being in the, in the marketplace. Yeah, that's a great question, and I think you would get different responses based to who you speak to in our in the sort of community um, tech community space. Um, I think that there's no legitimate use for a covertly installed operated tool like this to exist. Um, there are some tools that require the police to approach you with a warrant and seize your device in order to search it. Um, and, and I think those are much, you know, then the sort of checks and balances and sort of understanding that you have as an individual living in a democratic society is, is much greater. So I, 
I, I think there are tools that law enforcement and intelligence agencies can use for investigations, and they certainly aren't these ones where it's remotely, covertly operated. You literally never know uh, that you were under surveillance. You have no idea why you were under surveillance. Um, it, it's, you know, it's really built into the features of Pegasus now. You, the whole point is that it can self-destruct if it's being detected, um, that it can never be linked to the government operating it. Um, and um, it, it has a lot of really weird new features that we haven't seen before, like um, it never uses more than 5% of your uh, memory on your phone, and it never uses um, more than a certain percentage of your battery life. So in the past, people became aware that something was running because suddenly they had a huge battery drain um, or, some, or their phone slowed down because some program was transmitting information that no longer happened. So they've gotten really smart about you not ever being able to detect or understand that it's there. Um, from my understanding, they've even gone as far as when you're roaming on um, on, a, on a foreign network, the program shuts down and doesn't send information in order to avoid detection. So really, really sophisticated, invisible piece of software uh, that I think is absolutely by definition not compatible with any human rights framework and any expectation of a sort of um, civil liberties or a democratic society. Yeah, and, and I mean, we've heard that, um, I think from, from an SO group, that they've sort of only made the, the software available to governments for the purposes of, of mm. catching bad guys, so to speak, so those engaged in you know serious criminal activities and, and terrorism in the like. Um, but we know also that once they've sort of sold the software, they say they don't have access to the data or or have control over sort of how it's used and that sort of thing. And as a result of this, um, you know, quite extraordinary collaborative effort of investigative journalists around the world, we've heard about it being used um, or potentially at least being used to target um, activists and, and journalists and those in pretty serious danger if they do report on or speak out in certain issues when living in particular countries. Uh, I mean, is there a way of regulating this at all so that if a private company is selling, um, you know, spyware to a government, that there's any way of of ensuring that it's used for so-called proper um, reasons, even though, you know, as you say, your position is that um, this shouldn't be used. But is there a way of, of regulation better kind of accounting for the use of software such as this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if you can solve this, um, you have the million-dollar answer. <laughs> um, look, the UN uh, Special Rapporteur David for Freedom of Expression, um, David Kay, a few years ago, published a report on this industry, and he called for a moratorium um, on the trade of spyware tools until the international governance sort of agreed upon what you know, a common understanding and set of rules and standards is. More often than not, we see this turned against civil society and journalists than we see it turned against criminals. Mm -hmm. And I think that really speaks to the industry. So they can keep trying to say that it's for legitimate purposes and it's for governments. Um, but I, you know, you could have an argument about good guys versus bad guys in every society and mm -hmm. it would look different in every place. And I think it's important to also realize um, NSO Group and a lot, of, a lot of the companies selling spyware now are uh, working out of Israel. And Israel has a very um, sort of different understanding of the military, you know, the sort of industrial military complex yeah. than we do in other places. Um, and they come from a really securitized sort of uh, space. So for them, the definitions of what they're doing um, look really, 
look really noble and very moral uh, based in their societal context. And NSO group is made up of ex-military, ex-law enforcement individuals. So their world is, is very black and white. Um, and they continue to ignore people who have said that, you know, there's 100,000 different shades of gray that they continue to ignore. And um, I think that's you know, that that's incredibly hard to resolve. Could we get to a place regulation-wise? Possibly, if it was really tightly controlled. Um, but they've they've kind of rejected responsibility once a government uh, has the tool. So I, I don't think we can get to a place with tools like Pegasus. Yeah, and, and I mean, that really comes to the, the question in my mind. I mean, involved here, there's the, the device manufacturer and, 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 you know, Apple and, and Android. And, you know, uh, I, I guess Apple has a reputation of being very having a very secure environment but this this soft this spyware can um get onto to these sorts of devices as well but i wonder you know where yeah if it, if it can't be regulated in any way there is that question of who's responsible here to protect the user if there's any responsibility to protect the user like the the phone or device manufacturer the the obviously the company that that makes the spywares in there and also those that actually use the spyware is there any sense of anyone being uh, responsible here or and you know where can, oh. where can consumers get any sort of um, I mean I, the the one thing that is that I've read about consumers is that look you're probably not being targeted because if you're not like a you're if you're a regular citizen versus a, an activist or a journalist then maybe you don't have to worry about it and that doesn't seem, feel very um secure to me yeah look uh, that's a great question i think the the person well the the institution that we need to worry about is the government um the government is responsible um for protecting us i think companies you know android and apple and and everybody else can um, do their best because they have a responsibility to us as consumers. But this is a government versus government um, competition <laughs> of, of who's who's got the most intelligence and who's spying on who and who's um, intercepting international criminals. So it's up to the Australian government to have conversations with others. It's up to democratic governments to have conversations at international levels um, and agree and set sort of the rules and norms around what is and what isn't internationally acceptable in this digital space. Um, and the reality is a lot of the time governments like the Australian are failing in setting a precedent because they themselves are using these tools. Um, so I think it has to start and end with the government. Governments are also creating a market for groups like NSO groups, uh, you know, to um, to sell this sort of spyware. So, uh, you know, to say... I, I think we will continue to hold groups like NSO Group to account, and we will continue to push Apple and Android and, and other providers to have really robust standards and communicate to people when they could be possibly breached. But it is absolutely up to the government to set the rules of this game and accept accountability for what they're doing to the world with by setting this infrastructure and this sort of intelligence and law enforcement um, dynamic up. Yeah, and uh, as you alluded to, I mean, Pegasus, of course, is not the only spyware out there. It's it's um it's the software that's in the news at the moment because of the the massive data leak and the reporting around that, and and that it's sort of can become uh, uh, gain access to your telephone fairly easily without you necessarily needing to do anything. But I guess broadly speaking, Lucy, what what can can people do to best sort of guard against some of this kind of technology entering their phones or or spying on on their activities. Oh, 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's going to look different for everybody. Mm. Um, I think especially in the Australian context, um, environmental activists um, and people who participate in, um, you know, sort of the Black Lives matter protests last year, you know, people who are really on an extreme side of activism um, will need to develop a more uh, a more robust threat model. <laughs> what I mean by that, they if, if you need to have a private conversation or strategy conversation, I highly suggest you have that in person with no devices present. <laughs> I would just assume that someone in your movement is compromised. Um, for most people existing in the real world, um, don't you know, th- there's some basic digital security that needs to happen. Um, always install updates on your phone and make sure you have, you know, sort of the most updated versions of, of software. Don't, like, put it off for weeks on end because it's not a convenient time to restart your phone. Um, they do patch for these vulnerabilities really often. So make sure you install security updates. Make sure you have two-factor authentication and really robust passwords on all your accounts. And make sure you're not clicking weird links or PDFs uh, if you're not sure who the source is. Um, If it's your bank or anyone else, give them a call. Make sure it's from the source you think it's from before you open anything um, up on your phone or your computer. I think those were the basics. Um, Otherwise, really, it's, it's up to the government to ensure this isn't being used um, really egregiously to violate our rights. So I would say also really write, if you're appalled by what's happened and the revelations you've read about, write to your MP and, and write to uh, the Attorney General and write to Home Affairs that you're upset that this is happening in the world. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, we have seen governments um, speak very, very loudly and very clearly about China and Russia and others in this space, but it is more broad than that. Uh, and, yeah, that's, that's really good suggestions. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, it's great Absolutely. to speak with you. Well, thanks so much for having me on this morning. And we'll uh, speak to you again soon, no doubt. I'm Lucy Krakova there, um, Exec Director of Digital Rights What. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.